The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Everybody and welcome back to episode zero. This is the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a film critic, and everybody calls me Darth Plagueis, the Wise. Darth Pl- is that was that his? Yeah. Something? Okay, sure. Have I'll you be- heard the fable of Darth Plagueis the Wise? It's not a story the Jedi would have taught you. It's a pretty good Ian McDiarmid impersonation. I do okay. I I think Ian McDiarmid is a really underappreciated part of the... Even even though I think Emperor Palpatine shouldn't have shown up on the last one, he's awesome. He's He's a great actor. He's the most watchable part of those prequel films. Yeah, he's really good. Um, So, so yeah, this is a Star Wars podcast in which Whitney Seibold and myself, uh, we talk about Star Wars, but... We talk about the movies that inspired Star Wars. We're talking about the prehistory of Star Wars, and it's a very exciting thing to do because Star Wars is in many ways uh, a pastiche of almost every movie that came before it, and uh, eventually that, well, we'll that, move... That George Lucas saw, anyway. Well, but, uh... I mean, you can make a lot of arguments, but regardless... And all of the movies in the franchise are really heavily indebted to and inspired by uh, a lot of other classic films and sometimes not so classic films. And you, you, you start peeling open Star Wars a little bit, you'll see a, a pretty good cross section of film history. It's always frustrating to me when people like don't explore movies from before Star Wars because everything you like about Star Wars came from something else. Absolutely. And in in particular, yeah. Oh yeah, and this is a really really good example this week because when Star Wars came out in 1977, hmm. it was seen as a major step forward in terms of visual effects and sound design and music. Uh every single one of these elements in the film was kind of light years beyond everything else that was in theaters at the time. Mm. Uh, It was an incredible sounding movie. It was an incredible looking movie. It had imagery on screen that people had never seen before and were wondering how the hell they did that. Mm. There was an incredible amount of imagination that went on all the creatures and uh, all of the uh, wonderful visual effects. And uh, everything sounded really cool, and John Mm. Williams scored the shit out of it. It is considered kind of a linchpin movie in film history, and there are only so many of those. Mm -hmm. And there are at least a couple that Star Wars owes a direct debt to. Last week, we talked about The Wizard of Oz, which is one of those films. And this week, we're going to talk about the original 1933 classic, King Kong. King Kong. You know the name of King Kong. You know the fame of King Kong. Ten times as big as a man. 
Okay, that that's actually from the animated series King Kong. I tried to find a trailer for the original King Kong, but there was like almost no dialogue in it. It wouldn't just, read just in a podcast. Play, yeah, just playing the the music from the movie King Kong. Yeah, no, we're just we just did the uh, Rankin Bass King Kong because that show was dumb. Oh yeah, fun in fact, fun weird theme song. Here, here, here's a theory about King Kong. Most of it's dumb. Uh, <laughs> And we're going to be talking about the 1933 original film by uh, Marion C. Cooper and Ernest Shudsack, who uh, pioneered a lot of really important film special effects to make. Mm -hmm. And if you look up those people's lives, especially Marion C. C. Cooper, wow, they led interesting lives. Marion C. Cooper... Like flew in World War Two and was like taken prisoner by the Nazis, by, and... by the Soviets. Uh, oh, by the Soviets, he, wasn't he, it? Okay. He flew in the Polish uh, Air Force, yeah, and then later fought in the American Air Force. Uh, was on the board at Pan Am, yeah. Before he started like traveling the world to make like document, like nature documentaries and safari films. These are larger than life people in real life, mm. and when they made movies, the movies were. Larger than life. King Kong, uh, as most people I think are are aware, is the story of a giant gorilla. And it is a story about a film crew that goes to a mysterious island, Skull Island, in order to film the creatures there that are said to be fantastical and wondrous. And because, what they, because uh, Marion C. Cooper and Ernest Schutzack are kind of in the movie. They they wrote kind of, uh, they yeah. wrote an analog character for themselves. I want to talk director, about yeah. I want to talk about actually the genre history mm. that led to King Kong because King Kong didn't come from out of nowhere. It actually came from a very uh, mighty tradition uh, that is largely forgotten, even though King Kong is well remembered. But um, yeah, so they go to this island and they discover that holy shit, there are dinosaurs and giant weird snakes and this giant ape. Who mm. happens to have fallen in love with our star, played by the incomparable Faye Ray. And in their hubris, they decide not to film the creature, but to take it back with them, shackled. And it mm. goes horribly wrong for everyone. <laughs> it, it, it essentially turns into what uh, what Godzilla would be known for. Yeah. A, mm. giant, a giant monster rampaging through a city, causing want and destruction. And this isn't the first giant monster mm. movie ever, but it's probably the biggest, mm. at least until Godzilla came along. Uh, King Kong is a movie, and I just talked about this when we did uh, our podcast, The Iron List, last month. We talked about movies about movies. King Kong isn't just an adventure film, it is also a meta-narrative, because one of the biggest blockbuster genres mm. of the late 20s, early 30s, and beyond, but there was a real glut right there, were safari pictures. It was where filmmakers would go to places like uh, Africa or uh, India, uh, and is, they would... That is, uh, American and British filmmakers. Yes, very specifically. White filmmakers, because this is actually really important. Yeah. And, and indeed, there's, there's a, a, a tradition of this that goes way back into the silent era. era mm. Nanook of the North is one of these as well. Mm. Um, but the idea is they would go to these locales that people in America or Britain or main, you know, mainland Europe uh, had, were completely unfamiliar with. And would show you what it is like living here. Look at all the interesting cultures we have mm. here. Most of it is shit we made up for them to do and they don't actually do this. Mm. But that's in the film. And then they would also show a whole bunch of uh, local, incredible animals. Local flora, fauna, yeah. Yeah, flora and fauna. And then, and I'm, I, I really hate to be the one to break this to you, then they would kill those creatures on camera for your entertainment. 
And that was considered uh, very like fun and powerful. Yeah, it's uh, this, this sort of this, what a gross time. Well, I mean, this and this is why King Kong is actually a bit of a sit, a bit of a tough sit these days, mm. because uh, it really does propel forward that ultra colonialist great white hunter mentality mm. that was really pervasive throughout a lot of films of this era. In fact, we've seen other films of this era. Uh, like contemporaries to King Kong, stuff like Trader Horn and um, Chang, uh, yeah, Chang, which was also by Marion C. Mm. Cooper and uh, Ernest Shedsack. Uh, Chang is a film that is largely forgotten. It is the only documentary film to be nominated for Best Picture. Kinda. The first Academy Awards actually had two awards for Best Picture. There was Outstanding Production, uh, which had films like uh, Wings and Seventh Heaven, and then there was uh, Best Unique and Artistic Production. So if you remember a year or two ago when the Academy uh, sort of threw out the idea, idea, like, hey, what if we had an award for most popular movie and best movie? Mm -hmm. At which point everyone said, well, someone's going to say one of those is the real award and the other one isn't. So you're just diminishing both films. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, oh, right. We did that already because that's why they only did that for one year. (laughs) Wings was considered the de facto winner of the Best Picture Award and the Best Unique and Artistic uh, Picture Award is considered this weird novelty, but at the time they were considered equal. Uh, The film that won Best Unique and Artistic Picture uh, in the original Academy Awards was a classic uh, film called Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. It is a really incredible film and you should see it. But one of the other films that was nominated... It's really one of the best. It's so damn good. Sunrise is so good. It's so good. And I honestly think we should retroactively consider it a Best Picture winner. For sure. I think so. But... In any case, one of the other nominees was a largely fictionalized documentary called Chang, which is about a a small village in the middle of the jungle and a guy who's trying to protect his livestock from tigers. So they killed tigers on camera. It's yeah, it's like a little supposed to be a slice of life documentary, but everything was staged for the camera and very heightened. They like destroyed a whole like uh, village by like having elephants stampede through it but it was all faked because the village was very very small and i used baby elephants in order to make it make them look more larger it's, yeah. it's an impressive look like they get away with it but it's also very irresponsible filmmaking it, in a lot is, of ways it's also really weird that this sort of heightened drama or melodrama and fakery should be needed from somebody uh, like Marion C. Cooper and from Ernest Chudsack because these guys saw the real thing. Mm-hmm. They had an eye for like actual authenticity. Why would they need to fake it? You know, here's something, but I think that's something that they talk about in King Kong actually. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a little bitterness that seeps in with King Kong from them as filmmakers because at the mm-hmm. beginning of King Kong, Beginning of King Kong is actually <laughs> it's actually kind of blunt. Uh, it's just two guys talking on a on a pier. Right it's like, yeah, sure, sure is a big boat we got here. Yeah, we're doing all this plot stuff. Cool. We need a <laughs> we need a filly. We need a non-genou, yeah. you see? We need a young lady. The idea is that uh, this character named Carl Denham, mm-hmm. uh, played in the film by Robert Armstrong, uh, is the stand-in for Marion C. Cooper. And he makes a lot of safari pictures. He makes a lot of films uh, set in uh, incredible locales, filled with lots of animals, and that's where he makes his money. These are blockbuster film genres. Um, But he flat out says at the beginning of the movie, 
the studio and the critics both say the problem with my movies is that there isn't enough female representation. Mm. So I need to put a girl in my movie, even if it doesn't make any sense for the plot. And it needs to be like a young ingenue mm. that like people in Pacoima will respond to. So he has been trying to find an actress to bring along this long sea voyage to shoot a film that has no script <laughs> that they're going to figure out on the fly. And apparently every agent in town has said, no, that's a stupid idea and we don't trust it. So at the beginning of the movie, they set sail the next morning and they absolutely have to hit their schedule. And uh, an agent comes in and says, I'm not, I don't have any actors for you. I don't trust you and I don't trust your production. And this is actually something that's very, very fair because films like Trader Horn... Hmm were death traps. People actually oh, sure. died making Traitor Horn. Some of those deaths were captured in the film. Mm. There was an actor who starred in Traitor Horn. She played the uh, uh, white woman who was lost as a baby and has now become you know, a goddess, and it's so mm. offensive. It's, but it's, it's the whole H. Rider Haggard thing. Yeah, the H. Rider Haggard wrote a story called She. She. It's she. Yeah. yeah, it's this whole trope that's really really shitty but in any case the actress who played her and i'm kind of remembering her name and i'm going to look it up right now right. Uh, she contracted like a horrible disease <laughs> while they were making the movie and it ruined her whole career so making a movie like this uh, edwina booth edwina booth that's right making that's a movie that's, like that's this now. and yeah it ruined her whole career making a movie like this was a real danger so on one hand king kong is a meta narrative about hey why don't we do it all with visual effects because that's what the movie's about on the other hand, you can see a real bitterness with Marion C. Cooper, uh, it's sort of his stand-in character, where it's like, I just wanted to make like real like wildlife documentaries, and people keep insisting that I jazz it up with Hollywood melodrama. I'm, I'm wondering... I, I don't... It's difficult for me to tell how much we're to sympathize with the Denim character. Mm -hmm. uh, how the, the Marion C. Cooper stand-in, because I'm not sure if these are like legitimate grievances that he had, or if this was... Um, like something he was actually critiquing. Here's what I think. Here's what I, here's the deal. I mm. I can't say for certain because, to the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen a lot of or any meaningful like interviews that survived or anything with Nancy Cooper that talked about King Kong as a meta narrative. Mm. What I do know is that the he was known as a director of these kind of safari pictures. He did Chang. Uh, and that he has a character who is clearly a stand-in for him in a lot of ways, talks a lot about shooting these safari pictures. Whether or not we're supposed to sympathize with him, because I think Carl Denham is a character who on some level does learn that he screwed up by the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think... I, I don't uh, think he does, but, yeah, Hold on, we need to talk about it, but let's all save right, it for the end. Right. It's a comp I, I think the ending of the movie is kind of a cop-out, but I think they're going for something. Right. I think that when he's talking about filmmaking, I think it comes from a place of experience. So I do think there's at least a little commentary there that feels pretty direct. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, it's it's difficult to tell, um, especially the given the way a lot of people, a lot of audiences, and a lot of critics respond to this film. Mm -hmm. They're not watching King Kong for the meta narrative, and you can tell, especially when you watch like a lot of the remakes that came along. Yeah. I haven't seen the '70s version. It sucks. Uh, it's so I've boring. heard it's really, really bad. And Jessica Lange's mm -hmm. really good in it, but mm -hmm. man, is it not a good? It's but, so dull. 
I did see the 2005 film that Peter Jackson directed. Mm-hmm. There's de- there is not a a lick of self awareness in that movie. No. It is just self indulgent like crazy. And I like a lot it's of that really movie. Really boring as a result. I um, disagree with that. I like a lot of that movie, yeah. but it is way too long. Yeah, yeah. And I think indulgent is a really really great way to put it. But I think like, what by, Peter Jackson by the, did by the time the ape shows up in Peter Jackson's, you you. You finished the original King Kong and you went to get a drink already. However, structurally, yeah. it is similar because King Kong shows up like what? Like a third halfway through the movie? About, yeah. About, yeah. King Kong doesn't there. show up until halfway through the original King Kong either. It's just Peter mm. Jackson's movie is twice as long. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's more faithful than people give it credit for. I think Peter Jackson saw King Kong, this very efficiently told giant monster movie and he was just like I think everything in this movie is so cool I just want to stretch it out I want to make everything cooler every fight to be cooler every monster to be cooler every love scene to be cooler I want every single thing in this movie to be as big and wonderful as I want it to be and as a result yeah it's super fucking indulgent but I do think it comes from a place of genuine affection for the material and there's a lot I like in it Uh, affection is fine like actual knowledge or delving into the real meaning of the material is nowhere to be found I think that's fair. I think that's Uh, fair. He's not making any sort of critique on the film. He's just sort of rolling around on it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's fair. And uh, and I think because uh, King Kong is so uh, visually striking and because the special effects are so amazing, even today those things are astonishing. There's scenes where we get to see King Kong leaning over the side of a cliff, reaching like underneath toward a cave, and we see like a, an actual shot of a real live action person mm-hmm. in that cave avoiding this special effects monster's hand. It reads. It's really awesome. Uh, King Kong is a really imposing figure. We get a lot of character from this, essentially just a special effect. Yeah. Uh, I know in uh, in Peter Jackson's version, they uh, did motion capture, so mm-hmm. we actually had more human movements yeah. that one. Th- I think this King Kong has a lot more, like, character. Uh, I love... Just in terms of, like, its its movements and its expressions. I think this, Kong, this King Kong's character is a little bit more clearly defined, and I think a lot of that has to do with the way he was designed and also mm. the way that he is acted. Uh, by visual effects pioneer Willis O'Brien. Yeah, uh, I don't yeah, want to talk about that in a minute, but let's just get to King Kong. It's, yeah, okay. it's a pretty. It's, it's although pretty it's simple, a, yeah. although it's a pretty like kind of a long chunk of the movie. We can get through it pretty cleanly. Carl Denham needs to find an actress now. He has a couple of hours. So he, he runs he, off he into le- the streets of New York. The dock. Luckily, Faye Ray is there. She's stealing fruit. She's uh, completely destitute. Yep. She says, hey, you're just right for my picture. You want to come along? And she says, in a diner, sure, why not? Well, I actually like, because it's not just sure, why not? Mm-hmm. Her first thought, and they dance around it a little bit, oh, is, that is she's going to be sexually exploited. You're going to sexually exploit me. You're going to put me on a boat with a whole bunch of men. This doesn't make you feel comfortable. And Carl Denham just practically flat out says, Look, I am totally asexual. <laughs> like I don't, I have no interest in this whatsoever. Mm. You are literally only here to work on a film. Please just come work on my film. Mm. And Faye Ray is like, well, I'm not doing anything else. Fuck it, let's go. <laughs> so I take her on a ship. She meets uh, uh, what's his name? Is um, it Bruce Cabot? Jack chest blast whatever his name is Jack Driscoll played by Bruce Cabot Bruce Cabot yeah. uh, she meets a a studly plank of wood <laughs> who is not a great actor I think it's fair to say Bruce Cabot not a great actor yeah, I go to this line a lot he was unfortunately born without a personality um, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's the hunky guy who works on the ship and pretty much his entire character boils down to two things yeah we don't need any dames on this ship 
followed by, I like this dame. That's it. That's all he's got. I, it's so hard for me to take this film seriously after The Simpsons parodied it. Oh my gosh, so, so well. funny. Uh, it, one of the Halloween specials was a riff on King Kong. And King a, uh, Homer. King Homer. It's brutal. Yeah, it and, is so fucking funny. <laughs> and you, you, you even said there's a bit where uh, it kind of blasts a hole in the, the entire idea of bringing King Kong back to the States to display him for audiences. Yeah, we're going to talk about that when we get uh, but, to it, because uh, that whole concept is stupid It's so hell. stupid. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so uh, every line of dialogue, it's like a... I heard we're going to Ape Island. Oh yeah, what do they got there? No, it's like we're going to Ape Island. Uh, I was hoping right. we go to Candy Apple Island. No, it's, it's uh, we're going to Ape Island. Why? To capture a giant ape. Ah, uh, I was hoping we go to Candy Apple Island. What do they got there? Apes, but they're not as big. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know all the shots and all the lines have been just were skewered so well that it it almost took down King Kong. Yeah, it kind of did. Uh, just in, in terms of me being able to take this seriously, so I'm I'm watching King Kong yeah. for the first time in a little while, and I, I have to admit I had a cocktail while I was watching okay. King Kong, and all that's coming to light while I'm watching this is the awkward drama, the horribleness of the characters, and all of the racist stereotypes that you've heard about. I know. Uh, and yes, King Kong, not to put too fine a point on it, is a racist film. In many respects. And let's, and we're just about to get to that. Yeah. Let's talk about this for a second. So, uh, they get on the ship. They do a little bit of filming on the ship. They establish, uh, and I actually really like how they establish sort of Andero as an actor. Mm. Uh, Fate Race character's named Andero. And there's a bit where uh, uh, Carl Denham tries to like get her to act on camera, and he teaches her how to scream. Mm. And There's she's a great, only great bit of silent cinema yeah. acting, where she's kind of like putting yeah. her knuckles to her lips, and uh... and it's a really good contrast for later on when she sees King Kong, where she's an okay actor, and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, she's fucking scary. <laughs> it's a good little bit of it's a good little bit of storytelling mm-hmm. there. They get to the island, and when they land on the island, they discover, and it's hard to get to. You have to sail yeah. through a reef. It's and... a whole thing. Yeah. They get to the island, they bring all their shit on the island, and they discover that it's populated. And it is populated by stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Pretty tacky stereotypes who are in the middle of a giant musical number because movies need musical numbers. It was the 1930s. Right. It is lavish. It is huge. It's got it's a, a cast of God knows how many people. They are uh, uh, people of color and they are made up to look like every cliche in the book. Savages. They're, they're typical the, savages. Okay, and we like say movie, that with giant yeah, air quotes. The, the we want to make that abundantly clear. Movie stereotype, like the savage stereotype. This is it's an just... attitude that cinema, which in, in the early 1930s meant white cinema, had about mm. people who were not from America. Mm. And it's not as ugly as I've seen in other films, but it's pretty darn bad. It's it's pretty bad. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, there was... I, I, I hate to... Uh, cite one of my boss's own films, but there was a yeah. scene in uh, *Inglorious Bastards*. Yeah. Uh, full disclosure: I do work for Quentin Tarantino, yeah. but uh, this is just something that happened in the film, so I can comment on it. Yeah. Where um, they're playing uh, a party game, Nazi and some undercover British agents disguised as Nazis mm-hmm. are playing like a parlor game in a bar. Yeah. And they put the names of like famous figures on their foreheads, and they have to ask like twenty questions. Yeah. What 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 character am yeah, and, I? And uh, did they are they in a movie? Yeah, are and then yeah. the the character played by August Deal, uh, who's one of the who's the actual Nazi character, is uh, trying to figure it out. So it's like so. 
I was from an exotic place. I was taken out of my country. I was kidnapped against my will. I was taken in chains. I was displayed on a stage in front of everybody. And I, you know, I went against my will. Am I the black experience in America? That, oh, no, then I must be King Kong. Yeah. So there, it's been addressed yeah. that King Kong is a slavery metaphor. It is. It is. And, um... and it deals, it banks really heavily on a white person's fear of black emigres. That's true. <laughs> I mean, no, it's just flat can't, out true. Can't get around. Everything, everything uh, from King Kong's fascination with a blonde white woman—that mm. is a exaggerated version of an, inc- of an incredibly racist fear. Mm. Um, and and on some level, I think they are actually talking about how what happens to King Kong over the course of the film is a fucked up tragedy. However, they're also exploiting it for entertainment. Yeah. So yeah. you can't really have it both ways. But I think King Kong's just a little more complicated than just one or the other. It's it's a little more complicated. I think uh, people look, you can buy King Kong on a surface level really yeah. well that it is just this giant monster, giant, mo- giant monster movie. It's a really good horror movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good horror imagery. There there's a lot really of, is. There's a lot of awesome monster stuff in this movie. Awesome monster stuff. I mm-hmm. love the monster stuff in this movie. But at the end, it is, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to get around the fact that it is a big racist metaphor. Yep. And also, the uh, when we get to the final line of the film, it doesn't mean anything. I, I think uh, it means very little. Yeah. A lot of the classic monsters that we know of, mm-hmm. and I think this is one of the reasons why King Kong endures, uh, key into something that is part of the uh, popular consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, Dracula, uh, in addition to our fascination with death, uh, he is the sexy uh, outsider who comes to town mm. and starts seducing everyone we know. It's a xenophobic fear. Yeah. yeah. That's something that is very, very uh, uh, gross in the human nature. And I think it's one of the reasons why, even after all these years, it's hard not to at least somewhat sympathize with Dracula. Mm. Uh, Frankenstein is about, you know, what happens when men play God and also what happens when we fail our children mm. and we leave them unloved and they lash out at us. These are all very real things. And King Kong has the exploitation of human beings and because he is an ape, an exploitation of animals. And these things endure, even, I think, in ways that probably, at best, the filmmakers had a proto-understanding of where, like, we should just, if we're mistreating this ape, he should break out and attack people. Wouldn't that be fair? Mm. But it also exploits all the horrible shit about it, too. So I don't think they were there yet. It's also possible that this was just a pure accident. Yeah. That they accidentally threw in some real legitimate sympathy and meaning in a much more racist time. What, what I think was going on was, uh, really, this is, and this is something that... Um, we talk about, but I don't think we really get to the heart too too often, that the special effects are actually so good mm-hmm. that people are taking more from the creature than maybe even the special effects technicians intended. Uh, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm torn on because, that because Willis uh, O'Brien didn't do anything by accident. He couldn't. He had to work one frame at a time. I, I suppose so, but um, King Kong ended up being really sympathetic just because it was such an expressive thing. Right, but when that was the, a choice. It was a choice, but maybe... They could have just made it an evil-looking monster. And maybe that was their goal. Maybe they were trying to make it look like an evil-looking monster, I don't think they and, were. and they kind of made it something no. like a quirk of the design or a quirk no. of the movement made I don't, it seem a little bit more human. I don't think it's quirk. I think when you right. look at... Okay, so let's talk about King Kong. So right. the the people of the island want to offer up Andero to King Kong. 
Who's like their god. Who's like their god. He he lives on the other end of a giant uh, wall. If we did an episode zero for Game of Thrones, this is the wall that protects uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Westeros from the north. Exact same image. Um, Also, there are giants on the other end of that, too. Mm. Um, And, of course, the people uh, who are making the movie and all the sailors say no. And they go back to their ship. But then Andero is kidnapped and she's offered up to King Kong and a really incredible shot. And it's the first time you see King Kong and he removes himself out of the woods and the sense of scale is incredible. But, but there's still like trees in front yeah. of King Kong. So you see like it's head first. It's yeah. really this chilling shot. It's an incredible introduction to any character. Mm. <laughs> it is. There's certain there's certain characters in movies who just get really great intros. Harry Lyme in The Third Man, mm. Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West. King Kong. You remember King Kong's entrance. Like, holy shit. Um, King Kong takes Andero and it becomes this huge chase through Skull Island as uh, Carl Denham, uh, Rockface McGillicuddy, and the rest of the sailors <laughs> just chase after her to try to rescue her. Bricklanders. Yes. Fist, fist, fist. <laughs> um, they all try to rescue her, and it turns out Skull Island is populated not just with a giant ape, but with dinosaurs and a few other creatures that actually defy categorization. Uh, all of them are made with uh, stop-motion effects. Sometimes there's a combination of stop-motion and practical effects. There were some close-ups of Kong's face that are clearly just a big head. Mm-hmm. There's some, there's they a, clearly there, made fact, a giant a, hand as well. There's, there's a scene where Kong is eating a guy, and they just put the guy in the yeah. giant ape face. It um, made sense. But for the and most they, part... They would layer in these things using rear screen projection, yeah. that whereas there would be a movie screen, they would complete the special effect, mm-hmm. and then there would be a movie screen on camera, mm-hmm. they would project that special effect on a screen behind the actors to make it much larger, yeah. and then they would film the screen with the actors in it, and it would be uh, lit in such a way that everything would look like one continuous shot. Now, sometimes this is more convincing than others, but I will say that King Kong gets it right most of the well, time. Well, we're lucky in that King Kong has been famous enough that it's been worthy of constant restoration. It's yeah. been updated a lot, and if you see it on the Blu-ray, it's impeccable. It really like, they they cleaned it up it's so well. It's an incredible well, yeah. Blu-ray. Um, so that's really incredible but they bring in life with a variety of effects. There's also uh, matte paintings, something that Star Wars would use uh, as well, uh, which is, um, okay, so we can only build so much of a set, mm-hmm. or this is only the part, this is the only part of the shot where humans are going to interact, but we want to really just make it look amazing. So what they did was they painted photorealistic uh, imagery, mm-hmm. and they would place it in front of the lens just so, so that, it would make the appearance of that they're walking through a giant uh, jungle or a giant set, or in the case of uh, Star Wars, a Death Star that had countless armies of stormtroopers, even though we only had a few on set that day. Um, and when you look at how these things are created, it's absolutely impeccable, and it's hard to imagine anyone made them look that good. Mm. Uh, there's also just a, a sort of double exposure compositing where you cover up parts of the frame uh, so that it's all uh, covered, so that the actual, uh, nothing is being exposed in camera, so it's all black. Mm. Then you cover up the opposite side of frame and you shoot the reverse stuff mm. separately. These are complicated visual effects, extra complicated mm. before we had uh, uh, digital, c- digital effects yeah. because you just had to get it right. Yeah, so a, really painstaking. There was a lot of uh, forced perspective. Sometimes mm-hmm. they would paint, like, film something uh, in the extreme foreground, but it was like really teeny tiny, so it looked like it was in the background. Exactly. Um, they did that a lot in silent film. Uh, there's a really famous shot of um, 
Charlie Chaplin roller skating right next to a precipice, mm-hmm. and it turns out the precipice was actually in the foreground of the shot. Yeah, and but you know it's lined up just so that it looks like it was really far There's away. There's a shot like that in um, James Cameron's Abyss when they drop like a submarine into the water and it's mm-hmm. all surrounded by people. Those people look like they're in the foreground. They're in the distant background. It's actually just a little toy in little, the foreground. Little teeny tiny. You'd yeah. never fucking know. It's absolutely astounding. Yeah. So. Uh, this is one of those films that uses literally every tool in the toolbox and invents several new ones. Much like Star Wars. Uh, yeah. And the biggest visual effect, of course, in the movie is Kong himself and all the creatures he interacts with. Kong is created through stop-motion animation. If anyone is, uh, doesn't know what that is, here's what stop-motion animation is. You take a physical object. You're not painting anything. You're not drawing anything. You take a physical object like a King Kong statue or a Jack Skellington statue. And since film is comprised of 24 frames per second, Mm. what you do is you shoot one frame of King Kong, then you move him slightly, then you shoot the next frame of King Kong without moving the camera, then you move him slightly again, and maybe another part here, and then maybe his face, then you take another shot. It could take days to get a second of film, depending on how complicated the shot was. And because it was so painstaking and because the uh, technology they had with which to pull this off was so rudimentary, Mm -hmm. the visual effects artist, uh, whose name is Willis O'Brien, and he was one of the great pioneers of modern visual effects, he did a lot of it just by himself. Because he couldn't trust anyone else to come in there. And if someone came in there and sneezed and accidentally like nudged something off by a fraction of a frame, Mm -hmm. everything is lost. Yep. It is absolutely astounding Uh, the amount of work that went into creating King Kong and how amazingly it turned out because Willis O'Brien didn't just care about getting the animation. Willis O'Brien actually cared about the performance. Mm. Willis O'Brien actually imbues King Kong with a lot of characteristics. Like there's a really uh, interesting and and seemingly extraneous moment Mm. when King Kong is fighting an Allosaurus over Andero. Big giant killer monster fighting King Kong, and they fight, and it looks really cool. To this day, it looks really cool. After King Kong kills the Allosaurus, and it's gushing blood, it's really grotesque, he starts playing with the jaw of the dinosaur that, that he's he just, just broke. broken. Yeah. He starts playing with it a little bit. And this is a, sort of, it's a, it's a shot. Uh, I think both Peter Jackson and uh, who, Jordan Vogt Roberts, who did Kong Skull mm-hmm. Island, I think they both had that shot. It's interesting. In, in their movies. I think it's interesting because it's that kind of shot that I think sets up that Kong, although he is gigantic, mm-hmm. is a child. And I think that's something that we key into. And I think that's something that makes Kong more sympathetic no matter who he hurts. He has the proportions of a child. It feels like he hasn't like grown into mm-hmm. like his full size. He's got that gait and that uh, uh, posture. Uh, he does things like when he has Andero to himself, he doesn't do anything terribly unspeakable to her. He treats her like a doll. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's what he has. She, she's his dolly. And that's the affection he has for her. It's not. Ro- I feel like Peter Jackson wanted to make it purely romantic, and I think it's something a little bit more uh, innocent. Hmm. The uh, Kong's affection for Anne in the original, he rips off pieces of her dress, but it's only kind of prurient for the audience. You don't get the sense that Kong is terribly invested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that all comes from the last line of dialogue, which hmm. um, we'll, I guess we'll, we'll get to. It. We'll get to it. It's, uh, the, it's the coda. We'll, we'll we have we need to have uh, yeah, a good long debate but, about it. 
it's I think it's meant to read as kind of sexual, and I think well, it's exploitative. I mean, yeah. the whole reason why they got Anne Darrow in the movie in the first place was for sex appeal, mm. and that's and, the reason where we have Faye Ray yeah. in the movie as well. Which yeah. is why I think whether they were hyper conscious of it or not, this is kind of a meta narrative. They're telling you what they're doing, yeah. and then they do it. Mm. It's kind of like when uh, uh, Othello gives a speech to the audience and says, "Here's what I'm going to do." And then he does it. You There's mean, something, or I guess Iago. Iago does it as too. Did I say Othello? You said Othello. I meant Iago. Yeah. Iago does that. Richard the Third does that. Mm. It's a, they're interacting with the audience and telling them what to expect, mm. but they're doing it in a playful way. I think. Yeah. Um, the visual effects in this whole giant sequence of King Kong are really varied and fascinating. Um, However, a lot of the things that we're actually seeing are either terrifying. There's a scene where a guy is just eaten by a brachiosaur. The, the scene that really scares me, it's not even a monster scene. It's where they're running from a monster and we get to see bodies falling off a cliff. Yeah. And hitting the rocks below. Like, yeah, oh, they're, they're like they're trapped watching, on a log watching and the King people, Kong yeah. is like shaking the log. And which is a great down. effect because it's actual actors on a real log, which yeah. they were moving somehow. But probably not hydraulics or anything no, like that. No, they probably just, just had people hiding. People Pushing yeah. it, yeah, and but then they superimposed a special effect of Kong grabbing a part of the log, and it looked mm. totally natural. Yeah, uh, and yeah, then we, we cut to a shot of the bottom of the ravine, and we get to see bodies hitting the rocks. And, below. and what's weird is that that's actually a sequence that was supposed to be longer. When Kong was originally screened, after people fell into that ravine, they weren't dead yet. They were then supposed the, to be eaten by spiders, and it's. There's some sh- that sequence was cut from the film because it was too scary. People just were like, "I'm done. Mm. It's too horrifying. I can't. I, this isn't fun anymore. It's just a horror movie." So they pulled that scene out, and to this day, that footage has never been recovered. Mm. No well, one has ever seen that footage. A few still images exist, yeah. and I think some storyboards and a lot of notes. On the Blu-ray of King Kong, they have what I think is quite possibly the coolest special feature in any Blu-ray. Well, this, it's it's a short film by Peter Jackson. But they have a documentary about it mm-hmm. as well. There's a very long, extensive documentary about the making of King Kong. And it's great. And I highly recommend everyone It's all very technical. It. Very technical, but mm-hmm. for with good cause, because King Kong is a technical accomplishment. And there's a scene where they talk about what is called the Spider Pit sequence, which is long since lost. Peter Jackson, who at you know at this point was making a King Kong movie, had already like you he know had, done had, incredible visual effects wonders with the Weta Workshop with Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he had just finished Lord of the Rings. He was given carte blanche to do whatever the hell he wanted, and he says, "I want to do a, a three-hour version of King Kong. Can I do that?" And they said, "Go for it." Yeah, well, you can do whatever you want. You do whatever you want. But he also wanted to put out this like definitive. Uh, <laughs> home video release of King Kong, which I think they did. And on top of the movie looking great, this documentary is incredible. But the best part of it is, they you know they talk about the spider pit sequence. They talk about how it's lost and how sad that is. And Peter Jackson says, "What if we try to recreate it? Okay, put it back in the movie? <laughs> but we're not going to use modern effects. We are going to use the effects that they would have used at the time." Mm-hmm. So we're just going to get some guys on a soundstage. We're going to recreate all the models. We're going to look at everything that they had in the original film. And we're going to look at the the images that existed from the Spider Pit sequence, and we're going to put it all together. And you can watch that sequence on the Blu-ray. And I will say this. They did a great job. That sequence is creepy as fuck. Yep. Now, I will also give them massive credit. There is no option to watch the movie with that sequence edited in. That would they, have didn't been the, try, they didn't try to alter the, the movie as a whole. That uh, would have been the height of hubris. Uh-huh. And I'm glad they didn't do it. But it's a really cool, like, fan film that they made. And I think that's really neat. Um... But 
what's happening is they're running into nature and there's something kind of poetic about these asshole safari filmmakers who make a living exploiting uh, people and their various uh, uh, flora and fauna Mm. that they encounter on their on their various production travels and having them brutally murdered by all those things (laughs) and I think that comes partly from the uh, I think it was a 1931 version of Tarzan with Johnny Weissmuller Mm. which is a pretty good movie also has some racist bits but there's some cool stuff in it. And the it's bit I it's like, not as good as Tarzan and his mate, the follow-up. That one's though. better. But I, my favorite sequence in any Tarzan movie is in that uh, first Johnny Weissmuller film because Tarzan meets Jane, mm. they hit it off, and then, of course, all of the great white hunters find them and they immediately start shooting. Tarzan has never seen or heard a gun before, so he doesn't know what the hell's happening. He just knows that all of a sudden his ape friend is dead and bleeding, mm. and he's very confused. And then they take the only woman he's ever met from him. And so there's this extended sequence that follows that is a horror movie. Or he sneaks into the camp. And he's (laughs) killing all of them one by one and he's like only seen from shadow. It's cool. That's really cool. That's my favorite bit in any Tarzan movie yeah, ever. It's those guys awesome. totally ask for it. Yeah, because um, they, 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 every once in a while there's a little bit of self-awareness that these people are monsters yeah, I, for coming I, in and destroying the natural world like this. But yeah, I really wish there were more talk about King Kong as a, a criticism of that, mm-hmm. as uh, this idea that we're using King Kong to fake the things that are ordinarily real in order to call attention to the fact that the real films were actually committing real-life atrocities. Yeah. Uh, I think King Kong dances yeah. with that. It just never comes right out and says it. Yeah, and and of course, by the end, when we get to like the really exciting stuff, when King Kong is let loose in New York City, all that stuff is kind of gone because it's not a safari picture anymore. Now it's just mm. a, a rampaging monster movie, Agreed. which is fine. It's I, cool I love stuff. me a great rampaging monster. Um it makes total. It makes perfect sense. It would take thirty years for it to happen, but King Kong and Godzilla would eventually face off. Because Godzilla wouldn't come along for another twenty years himself. And they're about to do it uh, again, like next year. Yeah. Yeah. Just, well, just because we—that's just nostalgia at this point. Well, but, uh, I think, but whatever. I want to see it again. <laughs> it's only what King Kong versus Godzilla is not that great a movie. Can Are you kidding? I love it. Okay, I love King Kong. All right, I think there's room for improvement. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. There's a great bit where somebody, some guy's sleeping in a tent. A guy rushes in in a panic. He starts gathering a bunch of stuff. He's like, "Hey, what's going on? Giant octopus! Let's go!" And you go inside. <laughs> lo and behold, giant octopus. Weird that they changed King Kong to a giant octopus for this movie. Kong is an alcoholic who stomps <laughs> Godzilla into the fucking ground and then swims away with his middle finger raised. <laughs> to be fair, I haven't seen the movie in a really long time. Okay. okay. Um, it's really fun. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Uh, most of the crew that runs off to save Hendero gets brutally murdered and it's very satisfying. Mm. And because the first thing they do, it's, it's actually kind of um, like a, it's kind of like conventional horror movies that we have now, mm. where a lot of horror movies kick off with some form of original sin, and then mm. they get punished for it. Uh-huh. You know, like in the hitch in the Hitcher, when the guy gets stalked by the evil hitchhiker, the yeah. first thing he does is say, "My mom told me never to pick up a hitchhiker. Mm. He's going to get punished for that." Um, uh, the uh, uh, the the kids who were having sex. And let Jason Voorhees drown. Now all the everyone who's a teenager and has mm. sex afterwards will be punished thereafter. There's this extreme punishment for an original horrible thing they did. And one horrible thing they did was exploit Andero. Of course they did that. Another horrible thing they did was exploit that the local culture. Of course they did that. But once they go into the Skull Island proper, mm. the first animal they meet besides Kong is a Stegosaurus. Now, 
Stegosaurus is a big spiky dinosaur. Scary looking. It's a little scary looking. However, it's a, it's a herbivore, and it was minding its own motherfucking business. They just see a Stegosaurus. No, it starts charging before, it starts, they, it, they, they, before they fire any shots. I, I'm going to call foul on that, because I don't think it's charging. I think it notices them and walks over to them a little. Then they start shooting it. Then it starts charging. Mm. And then, when they've already shot it, and it's fallen over, and it's twitching, they keep shooting it. Yep. Like assholes. <laughs> like these e- evil mm. fucking assholes. And I happen to believe that I think Willis O'Brien is more sympathetic for these monsters than he is for the humans because... I think he's more sympathetic than Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shudsack, I think actually. so. The, the Willis O'Brien, before King Kong uh, came together, was working on a project called Creation. And Creation was going to be a big stop-motion spectacular about dinosaurs. Mm. He... You can see some test footage that they had put together. It took them like a year to do it because they were doing it without real proper backing. But mm-hmm. with a combination of models and mostly stop motion and a ton of compositing work, uh, they he had created a, a, a film about, I think it was Triceratopses, and they were... Hey, cats! Oh my goodness. I, cats don't like Willis O'Brien movies. You're Philistines. Yeah, we need to get a camera like really down close to them and put like little dolls in front of them. And there we the go. Cats be giant monsters. But uh, you know, he didn't just make a movie about like dinosaurs trying to kill humans. He made initially a film about a mother triceratops and a baby triceratops, and the baby triceratops like goes on a walk and explores a bit, and then a person kills it. Ugh. And then the mama triceratops chases it, uh-huh. and that's kind of the end of the short. Mm. Because fuck that guy. Willis O'Brien, I think, has a lot of affection for his creations. You have to when you have to spend that much time with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all boils down to uh, uh, Sledge Brickhammer uh, tracks Andero down to uh, Kong's m- mount- mountain hideout. He has to fight like four monsters just to get to the point where he can be alone with Andy. He starts feeling sense he's really annoyed. There's a giant snake in his hideout. Yeah, and you like- get the impression they were probably cool together, but once it's after Andy, he's like, hey, hey! Mine? <laughs> nope. I told you, man. If I ever bring a chick back here, Luca, you, gotta sleep, you gotta mind your own business. Luca, get off the counter. That kind of thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of, a, of another funny name. Brick Ridgemeister rescues Anne. Chest, chest hair. Yeah. Rescues Anne, mm. and they're on a big chase, and Kong is chasing him through the island. And when he finally breaks through, and there's a huge sequence, they're trying to barricade the the giant door just in case they ever wanted to let King Kong in, which is kind of a weird design flaw if you think about um, it. Like, why uh, do you yeah, make a giant so. door? Like, what do you do? You occasionally want him to come into your village you, and break you, everything. Like, hide in caves where he wouldn't find, like underground know. where he wouldn't find you. Uh, but he breaks in, he kills a bunch of people. It's really fucked up. Eats them, mm. snaps them in half. Gross. Uh, and then Carl Denham gasses him. He throws a gas bomb at him. And uh, then there's like, okay, great. We gassed King Kong. Now we can leave safely. And Carl Denham's like, wait, instead of making a movie, let's just kidnap him. Let's just do the real thing. Yeah. And he's like, we'll make a raft. How large is that raft going to be, Carl? I hope you have enough smoke bombs to keep him, keep him dozed <laughs> for a month as you like ride back to civilization. Uh, you started in New York. You well, started in New York and you ended up in like, it's like, what the? It, it's in the it's, Caribbean, though, isn't it? It's not too far, right? Is it in the Caribbean? 
Isn't that where Skull Island is? I thought Skull Island. Okay, I don't know. Uh, lo, uh, you yeah, know what? I just thought, I assumed Paci- it was. It's not the South Pacific. I assumed it was in the Pacific, but listen, right. I don't know. I'm gonna look it up. Skull Island location. <laughs> okay, make sure it's on the original. Though. Yeah. But his whole thing is, we'll take Kong with us. What a great show it will be. Hmm. At which point we cut to, presumably a few months later, there's one cryptic and really horrifying comment where they said we knocked the fight out of him. And you're just like, oh, poor Kong. Nah. You, didn't, you didn't know what you were doing, man. You don't have a sense of human right and wrong. And you're just, you were just doing your own fucking thing. Ridiculous. <laughs> um, and so they're doing a live Broadway show of King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Mm. And we see people take their seats and they're mad that it's not a movie. Like, I wanted to see a spectacle. And they're like, you'll be fine, sit mm. down. <laughs> it's it's going to be a thing. And then we cut to backstage and Anne Darrow is there and like, concrete blondie Jones is there. <laughs> Concrete Blondie Jones. I'm not. I'm not MST3K. I can't come up with the zingers right off the top of my head like that. Um, and they're all there, and um, they're giving like a, a a press conference about what's going on. Mm. And at this point, this is where The Simpsons kind of ruins King Kong. Oh, you know what? It, it says off the co- coast of Sumatra, which is in the South Pacific. Okay, so, so yeah. that's a long, that a long boat that's ride. A long boat ride. Yeah, that's a long ass boat ride. So. <laughs> anyway, uh, they, they, they're having this, sh- this big Broadway show, and then it's the Simpsons who finally pointed out the huge flaw with this Broadway show. <laughs> it's a boring fucking show. Mm. No, there's no uh, idea like, oh, and we're going to talk. Well, uh, presumably, they'd have the people who captured this thing come out, and they'd tell the story of how they went there, and they'd give and, you a lot of detail. And they and, do, but it's really perfunctory and but yeah, short. But yeah, the, the, the line in The Simpsons is, uh, Mr. Burns plays the... the <laughs> The yeah. filmmaker character and a reporter says, "What do you got on? What do you got for the show tonight?" And it's like, "Oh, well, the, sh- the ape's gonna stand around for three hours or so, and then we'll close with a stunning rendition of Dugan and Dershowitz." Yes, the comedy stylings of Dugan, the comedies and, of Dugan, Dugan and Dershowitz. Dershowitz. <laughs> because what, at least Peter Jackson, when Peter Jackson did King Kong, mm. he at least was like, "Okay, we're gonna build a Broadway show around King Kong." It's also dehumanizing and shitty, mm. but. At least it feels like a show, and then it's going to star Andero well, playing consider, herself. Consider, yeah, we we are modern audiences. We have shorter attention spans. It's not that we go in and just sort of look at an ape for three hours. And these sorts of exhibitions of wildlife of strange things were way more common back in the day. True. Um, look up uh, Jay's Journal of Anomalies at some point. Ricky Jay mm. collected all kinds of ephemera from unusual entertainments throughout the ages. It, it was one of his biggest hobbies. There would be shows of just uh, people just looking at the elephant man. John Merrick. Yeah, he just yeah. stand there. And uh, like uh, and other weird things as well, like people who could remember stuff really well. Yeah. Or he could reach into his pocket and pull out anything somebody from the audience asked for. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's it, a show, though, because there's actually show. interaction with but the then, audience. But then there'd also long... be like, come in and watch somebody who's slowly starving themselves. Yeah. It's like, uh, so you just look at them? It's like, well, yeah, because you don't see that sort of thing every day. You're sort of moved to this weird kind of different headspace with that kind right. of entertainment back in the day. But there's very little... Entertainment was a lot different in the past than yeah. we think it was. But I will say this. There was a very small chance that the guy whose whole shtick is he could remember everything would 
break free and like kill everyone in the theater, which is exactly what happens in King Kong. But they do a bunch of flashbulbs, and King Kong breaks at, his chains. Look and at attacks. something. Look at like P.T. Barnum, you know, who did yeah. collect rare animals and weird taxidermied mm-hmm. corpses and stuff. And indeed, one time his uh, uh, his whole museum like did a. It burned. It burned, it burned. And like burned a lot of the animals like stampeded, like a lot of the animals died. Some stampeded through the streets. There's actually a weird bit in Gangs of New York mm. where you see that happen where like one of P.T. Barnum's elephants just starts a running through the streets. York, yeah. And in the middle of this huge riot, everyone's like, hey, we got to kill everybody. Is that an elephant? The fuck? Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, and, kill everybody. And it was such a sad low moment, according to the greatest showman, about how hard <laughs> his life was. And the greatest showman is incredibly responsible. Fun, though. Um, and I feel P- like P.T. Barnum would have loved that movie because mm-hmm. it's disingenuous <laughs> it's, and makes him look it's good. Completely dishonest. Um, King Kong escapes, oh. and King Kong goes on a rampage. This rampage is filmed as well as any monster rampage ever. Mm. Um, and it's interesting Smashes because trains and yes, he climbs the building, reaches in yeah. into a building and pulls someone out. It's, it's yeah. the whole sequence where he's just killing random people in New York. It's really kind of terrifying because you got to realize that this was his big debut. People didn't know he existed yet. Hmm. So imagine you're just asleep on your 10th floor apartment. And then all of a sudden a giant hand grabs you. Hmm. And you're screaming. You have no idea what the fuck is going on. And all of a sudden you're hanging off a building with a giant ape. Like screaming at you. And then it drops you. And then you die. Hmm. That's a scary thing to happen, and there are yeah. people. There, there are subway. There are sorry. There are elevated train disasters and everything, and it's really quite an impressive production. And of course, pretty quick, Kong finds where Anne is. Mm. I mean, he doesn't go too far away from the theater, so I guess it's plausible. But still, what luck! <laughs> he finds her and he starts scaling the Empire State Building, which was at the time the tallest building in the world, and worth noting, had only been erected three years prior, so it was really new and novel. Mm. The sense of scale that they have on the Empire State Building in this is really impressive. Like there's these like wide shots of New York City and the Empire State Building towering over everything. Mm. Like the height they get out of it is just terrifying. And then, of course, they say, well, we'll send a bunch of planes after him. And so they're shooting at King yeah, Kong. They, yeah, they have this big, like, revelatory moment. Oh, he's up there. We haven't tried planes yet. That's, yeah. Those, those are new. But uh, relatively, and yeah. uh, certainly uh, uh, after World War One, there were a lot of dogfighting movies, so we're getting all that element in there as well. And we, they shoot at King Kong, and... There's this moment that's really, like, King Kong has been really scary this entire time. Andero is not super sympathetic to King Kong. Andero has been kidnapped and kind of brutalized by King Kong, whether or not he realized he was doing it. We don't really get a good sense of how she feels about King Kong. Yeah, and that's something Peter Jackson was more interested in. We see that Andero is more sympathetic towards Mm. King Kong in that version, which Mm. I, I like, and that helps set up that ending a little better, but... Um, here and she's go, just scared. They go, they go ice skating together. I know that part's that part's dumb. So that part's dumb. I'm not gonna lie. I, I get they thought that would be sweet and innocent, yeah. but it totally doesn't work. Um, but there's this bit where he's really scary, and the music sells how scary it is, and we haven't even gotten to the music yet, which we need to talk about in a second. Um, and then the planes shoot him, and then he like looks at himself and he realizes this is blood. What did I do? And you can just see him really confused and scared. And then they shoot him some more, and he looks woozy and sad. And then he falls, and he hits, because the the Empire State Building isn't like a straight up and down tower. It's got, like, tears. And he hits on the way down. It's so fucking sad. And then it cuts back to him at the bottom of the building. 
And it leads to the line you've been talking about this whole time, where someone says, ah, the planes got him. And Carl Denham, who's there, says, it wasn't the planes, it was beauty that killed the beast. The end! Don't think about that too hard! <laughs> because it doesn't make any sense! It's not so, really Beauty's fault that King Kong was kidnapped by a bunch of asshole no, capitalist, you know, corrupt Hollywood yeah, she exploitation artist. She wasn't the one exploiting Kong. Yeah. She wasn't, like, like using her beauty I mean, to, she, to capture She was Kong. part of the show that they were doing. Yeah. And she didn't, like, so she I guess she's kind of part of the machine, but she was exploited as much as Kong was. Well, he, he can't she just was exploited say, to capture Kong in the first place. You know what would have been a better line of dialogue? It wasn't the planes. It was me. Yeah. I was the, the asshole filmmaker who thought this would be a good idea, and yeah. I feel terrible that it I led thought, to the death of this creature. Th- and I learned that filmmaking actually comes with a certain amount of responsibility. That's what that line should have been. I actually no. totally agree with yeah. you on that. I think that's a really he, good point. He, he, the filmmaker is looking, no, no, it was, it was my ingenue, it was all her. It was, be- <laughs> uh, it was, it was be- beauty killed the... Be- uh, you know that line that John Keats has about truth and beauty and beauty is truth? Uh-huh. and Something to do with that, but that doesn't make any sense, actually. So just run with that, uh-huh. and they repeated that, that. I mean, it's a really famous line. They yeah, repeat, very famous. They repeated it in a couple of the remakes, I think. Um, oh yeah, the, I know Jack, Jack Black Jack- gets to say it. Yeah. yeah, it's in the Peter Jackson film. I can't remember if it's in the seventies yeah. one, but I just don't remember most of that movie because it's not good. It's not in Skull Island. Um, no, well, they didn't get to that part in Skull Island. Oh, yeah, um, that, that's for a later film. But yeah. uh, the idea that like brutality is undone by gentleness or uh, like brute animal force cannot handle a small infusion of humanity. Like none of these things really read in King Kong. I think Marion C. Cooper and Ernest Judsack weren't thinking too hard about King Kong. Not on that level. I think they were trying to make a really thrilling adventure monster picture and they did. Uh, I think that all of the special effects technicians were adding more than I think the filmmakers asked for, mm-hmm. making it a better film Perhaps. than the, than they maybe would have directed otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be like and, if you were watching Jurassic Park and the T Rex made you cry. Yeah, like, like that's what King Kong for, is like. Sympathy for, yeah. for the the Tyrannosaurus. And I think Willis O'Brien did a lot of the heavy lifting there. Who else did a lot of the heavy lifting there? Was Max Steiner, um, the the composer when. King Kong came out in 1933. Mm. Uh, music in movies wasn't the way music in movies is now. And in fact, sound film had only been around for half a decade. Mm. Uh, in the silent era, there were very few silent movies that would play with no music whatsoever because it'd usually be a live musical accompaniment or they would play a record next to it or sometimes there'd be live audio effects. Mm. Uh, you know, like Foley, you know, gunshots, whatever. But... Uh, when they invented sound, it took them a while to adapt the way that silent movies used music sort of tonally and to help push the story forward mm-hmm. into talkies because the sound was actually like it was all on the reel and people were worried about mixing it properly and people really weren't using it to tell a story the way we do today. Mm-hmm. The studio, which was really worried about King Kong not making money, which they didn't need to worry about, but they worried about it for Star Wars, too. Um, the studio wanted Cooper and Shitsack to go with stock audio. Like, yeah. oh, we, we have plenty of music in the library, just use some of it. To the point where Marion C. Cooper was like, no, this needs its own score. So he hired Max Steiner out of pocket. 
And then the studio later reimbursed him because it was a good idea. Matt Steiner is considered one of the fathers of the of the modern music score because he didn't just come up with a great opening title theme or like a memorable King Kong theme. He told the story. He evoked mood he, he where there gave, wasn't any. He gave Kong his personality. A lot of yeah. it. He gave scenes its personality. There's the scene where they go onto the island and there's that, as I said, there's that big musical number with everyone who, who lives on the island. But then when they stop the musical number and the guy walks down from, like the chief of the, of the, the people, he walks mm. down from wherever he is towards the white protagonists. The music walks with him because mm. they acknowledge that that scene is boring. Mm. He's just walking, and it's taking 20 seconds. The music walks with him. And this is something that we will see in Star Wars as well, whenever John Williams like walks Darth Vader somewhere, and you hear that Imperial March. Mm. Well, that, that wasn't until um, Empire Strikes Back, but yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Like Regardless, like he understood that music is... I, I see music in many ways as a movie's inflection. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the, just the, the, the images, the, the, you know, the, the, the text... Mm. But it, and how you read it comes a lot from the music. We've yeah. mentioned this before. Try watching E.T., the last scene in E.T., without the music. It sucks. Yeah, nothing's happening in that scene. John Williams <laughs> tells you what to feel. I remember uh, uh, somebody did a music experiment with The Empire Strikes Back, where mm -hmm. Darth Vader says a really threatening line, like, go get those rebels, I want them alive, and he spins away, but then they start playing Sailor Hornpipe music. It's like, and he marches off to that hornpipe music. Yeah. And you, you half expect everybody to start like kind of dancing and drinking rum. There's a there was a good uh, I don't know if it's still there anymore but there was this website a long time ago where uh, it was just a shot of Count Dooku from mm -hmm. Attack of the Clones on his like weird little floaty speeder thing like his personal like uh -huh. sky motorcycle and it was just this shot this like twenty second shot mm -hmm. of just him on this thing and. Every time you clicked on it, it would play different music, uh -huh. and it would just show you just how music affects the story. So it starts off with that, you know, like really cool Star Wars music. Bum, 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 mm -hmm. bum. Click on again. Uh, click on again, and it goes. Or they'll do uh, that song from Karate Kid. Try to be best, but you know that a man's got to know the day. Yeah. Music has a huge difference, and King Kong was one of the first films to really tell a story mm. in synchronized sound using music on that level, and that's something that people mimicked real quick because it made King Kong work. It made images that could have been ludicrous seem scary. Yeah. It made scenes that could have been boring fascinating, and it's something that George Lucas was not afraid to exploit in Star Wars, because Star Wars, again, is another broad fantasy where this could be dumb if we don't treat it right. And he, yeah, John, John yeah. Williams was on board. John Williams understood, we need to go back to old school, broad, pomp and circumstance, huge music to sell everything as though it is fucking fascinating right from the beginning. Mm. And they absolutely were inspired by King Kong, as was almost every other movie with a musical score ever since. The other thing that King Kong did was really novel at the time, and would continue to be novel for a really long time, is mm. they invented their own uh, sound effects. Mm. They didn't use stock sound effects, which was the norm for well, more than half the history of, of filmmaking, really. Mm -hmm. um, for many, many years, uh, when you had something like, say, a gunshot or a punch 
in a movie. Studios just had sound libraries, and they would have maybe dozens of gunshots to choose from, but they didn't really see the need to do a different one every time. It's a gunshot. Who gives a shit? And you can kind of see the logic in this. The problem is, is that the way you're telling your story might require a different sound for the gunshot, which is why in something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, when Indiana Jones shoots someone, he's not just like shooting like a bang. Mm. It sounds like a small explosion coming out of his gun. It's yeah. huge. And when he punches someone, it sounds like he's like... Yeah, yeah these gigantic punch noises. Yeah, exactly. It's got to feel larger than life. So when Ben Burt did the sound effects for Star Wars, he didn't want to use a bunch of stock sound effects. He wanted to make sure everything sounded distinct. And so he would go to different places all around California in order to record things the correct way and get the sound that he wanted, mm. not just the sound that would kind of work. King Kong did this too. They could have just taken a stock roar effect for King Kong, but they knew King Kong needed to sound unlike any other animal. So what they did was they took a lion's roar and a tiger's roar, slowed them down, and played them both together backwards. Yep. And it sounds like nothing else. They, they did similar things for the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. They yeah. like mixed together a bunch of different animal noises. Exactly. Um, this is something that was yeah. very influential and something that was a creation of a creature that goes beyond the image of it. Mm -hmm. The sound really, really matters. And that's something that George Lucas understood. And I think a lot of other filmmakers understood. But in Star Wars, and I think in particular Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think those are the movies that very much redesigned that aspect of sound design and mm -hmm. the movies that changed the way that especially blockbuster movies would do sound mm -hmm. from that point on. Like, um, I was watching that documentary, Making Waves, uh, which is all about the history of sound design. It's not as comprehensive as I'd like, but it's pretty good. But they talked to the sound designers of Top Gun, and they were like, yeah, we went to uh, uh, an aircraft carrier to hear what uh, jets sound like. Mm -hmm. Turns out they sound like shit. Uh... So we had to make all of that up. So we had to make sure the Jets sounded cool. Why? Because it's a fucking propaganda movie about why you should join the Air Force. So they need to sound badass, and they did. And one of the things they used was animal noises. Because no, <laughs> it no. feels very feral and primal <laughs> and powerful. You want to put, you want to sit in the cockpit of that thing. Like, yeah, I'm a monster! <sighs> Wait, anyway, I'm sure there's stuff I'm forgetting about King Kong. What, um, are, what are your well, thoughts I'm, I haven't addressed I'm yet? I'm trying to think of, like, a little bit more... Um, how this relates more directly to Star Wars. And I think a lot of the ethos that maybe wasn't created with King Kong, it's probably created with somebody like Georges Méliès, and we'll get to Georges Méliès on this mm -hmm. podcast, but the idea that you are communicating a story via special effects, mm. that the special effects themselves are kind of the story. It's this weird sort of McLuhan-esque if you will, mm -hmm. uh, idea of special effects, that the special effects are the message. Yeah, without and visual effects, like, uh, we literally have no movie here. Exactly. You wouldn't and, see anything. And, uh, and Star Wars, I think, you could make arguments that it's very much the same way. Everybody says, oh, you know, Darth Vader is such a cool villain, or Luke is this really sympathetic character. But I think what's really pulling people in when you're watching Star Wars in 1977 is that it looks so amazing. The ships are really mm -hmm. realistic, especially mm -hmm. compared to other uh, special effects at the time. I think it helps that they uh, sound amazing as yeah, well. The, like the, the, the hum new, of the these, lightsaber is new, beautiful. These new special effects-based images. Yeah. So what Star what 
occasionally a film will come along and will reinvent the way we tell stories via special effects. Star Wars was one of them. Uh, Planet of the Apes was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Avatar was most certainly one of them. Yes. Uh, you could even say The Phantom Menace was one of them. I would argue uh, The Lord of the Rings was, although they mm-hmm. didn't invent the motion capture character, they showed that it could work. That, yeah. yeah you, could, you know, like Gollum is mm-hmm. way more of a step forward for motion capture than Jar Jar, who was a significant creation in visual effects history, as was, say, mm-hmm. Draco and Dragon heart a couple of years earlier but Gollum got actual emotion and, and performance out of there yeah. in a way that those other characters kind of did well, I, I think Jar Jar's design was probably like little tiny not very expressive eyeballs yeah uh, maybe it was they, a bold choice yeah, it if, just they, didn't if really... they gave him big eyes maybe it would be it would be different but yeah. um uh, yeah, and I think uh, that is something that George Lucas was very keyed into at the time. That we can that film is very much a visual medium. You, if you can fake it, then it's real. Yeah, in cinema, and I think he was very interested in the idea of using special effects, the style of the special effects, as the very basis for the telling of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a common. Uh, Criticism with something like Star Wars is that uh, it plays maybe a little bit too deeply into archetypes, that it's a little too broadly representational rather than mm-hmm. uh, really, really specific. But like, it doesn't feel nuanced yeah, in Luke, terms of character. Luke, Luke doesn't big. have a lot of weird little quirks to his character. He's actually a very plain character in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And you could even say the same thing about someone like Darth Vader. He's just plain villain character. Mm-hmm. Um but because the special effects are so astonishing, we actually need characters that are pulled back a little bit. Yeah. So the real true main character, the special effects, can shine. And I think John Williams' music also evokes a lot mm. of emotions in those characters that might not. Like if you just saw a picture of Luke Skywalker looking mm. at a sunset, okay. Then you play John Williams' music over it, you're yeah. like, oh, feelings! Ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. Got all yeah. these feelings now. The other thing I think is worth pointing out as well, we talk... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, then there was one other thing. Oh, I was going to um, the, the idea of feeling sympathy for a monster. Yeah. First of all, that's something that kind of happened with Star Wars by accident. The big monstrous character, the villain, Darth Vader, became the character everybody loves. Uh, Chewbacca. Chewbacca's uh, a monster. Chewbacca, yeah, this this kind of Sasquatch is the, yeah. uh, the sort of side character that you really feel some kind of sympathy for, even though it doesn't speak. Uh, yeah. And but there is one moment, and this is I bring this up because this is one of the few moments I remember from when I was a little kid. Is it from Return of the Jedi? It's from Return of the Jedi. I was going to bring yeah. this is uh, what I was going to bring okay, up. Okay, well then, then by all means, because uh, there are some stop motion creatures in uh, uh, Star Wars, uh, the Tauntaun. From uh, the Empire Strikes Back, the thing that Luke rides in the snow, mm. um, the monsters in like the hologram chessboard. Uh, but one of the more famous ones, and I think the scariest monster in all of Star Wars, is the Rancor mm. from uh, the opening of Return of the Jedi when Luke is dropped into a pit, not unlike a spider pit, by Jabba the Hutt, and he has to fight a giant reptile monster. Mm. And he does, and he kills it. And it is all in the stop motion like, animation. It looks, looks like incredible. A, it's like a naked mole rat to me. But it, it looks like. A big roided up predator. Like, he's got that weird <laughs> mandible and everything. But here's the thing. After he kills the thing, uh-huh. people are upset. Well, the, They liked it. There's and there's actually, like, a handler. You know, some, like, a handler, trainer, just a guy yeah. who is sad that the monster is dead. Yeah, that's something that I think is something that is, if not an homage to King Kong, I think it's something that exists because King mm-hmm. Kong gave us that kind of sympathy for that kind of creature. Yeah, I, was, I was five years old when that movie came out. And I felt so bad for that Rancor movie. Well, I, I don't remember the movie. I didn't see a lot of movies when I was a little kid. And so I don't remember Darth Vader. I don't remember Yoda. I don't mm-hmm. remember... 
any of the laser sword fights or the ships, but I remember the scene where the monster is already dead yeah. and a, a guy comes out from a door next to the dead monster and, and he cries yeah. like, my monster is dead. I know. I felt really bad for That's that the thing. King Kong moment in Star Wars. I think there are other King Kong moments in Star Wars, but there's moments we don't like to really think about too much. We yeah. talked about the colonialism inherent in King Kong and how, oh, we're going to go to this island and it's going to be full of cliches. Yes, these uh, uh, people who live in sort of a tribal society who wield spears and confuse us for gods and oh god Ewoks mm. are kind of a, a, a bad representation aren't they Yeah, there's some problems there and you can say the same thing with the Tusken Raiders and in fact a lot of which representation ones were, which ones were the Tusken oh the sand Raiders. people Oh God! Really? They're called that? They're, yeah. Oh, gee. Sand people slash Tusken Raiders. A lot of the uh, other species in oh. Star Wars are evoking intentionally or subconsciously. I think usually intentionally. Uh, other groups of people on Earth, or at the very least, other archetypes that have sprung from pulp fiction. I know that the Nemoidians are uh, mm-hmm. like they're given those like really horrible accents that a lot of people complain about. Yeah, yeah. Time. No, they 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 sound like. Uh, a caricature of people from Japan, for example, yeah. and uh, and uh, Watto, who is this sort of uh, um, <clears throat> this greedy, you know, traitor it's at a bazaar. Is owner, right? yeah. He's also he owns slaves as yeah. well. He's also a, a, a trickster who uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know tries to make money off of everything. Like he's a he's a cliche of like every character you've ever seen in a bazaar in a movie set in a place like Aladdin or. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a problem Star Wars has, and it's a problem that people didn't used to uh, aggressively discuss as a problem. Mm. I think it's always been pointed out, but the uh, there was a lot of people who just didn't want to engage with that, and so they didn't really talk about it too much. Or it was from an era where a lot of these tropes were still being used unironically, and people weren't ready to throw them away yet, even though they should have. Uh because they didn't. Uh, it's a problem, pe- and people, yeah, people weren't really yeah. acknowledging how wh- what a problem it was. I mean, they were only sort of accepting the surface level stuff. And indeed, but like there were like performances in as from the at least as far as the eighties, mm-hmm. where people were in like yellow face. So it was a Joel Gray in Remo Williams, yeah, yeah nominated Joel. for a Golden Globe for playing a uh, it was Chinese, He's a right? Chinese man, yeah. yeah. Or a, the or, fuck is that shit? Don't watch Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh like God, I'm like, like Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Is Mickey Rooney is is like a a, a terrible caricature in that movie. Um, And this kind of thing persists. Even the Wachowskis tried to use that. I think think they attempted to do it in a more thoughtful way, but ultimately... With Cloud Atlas. With Cloud Atlas, ultimately, there's a lot of people playing other uh, uh, nationalities and it mm. it is ugly and gross I, and I understand exploitative what, of uh, yeah it, it doesn't work I understand I under, what they're getting at I understand it what they're work. getting at well just visually it was it was way too uh, reminiscent of stuff mm-hmm. like Joel Grey and Remo Williams and uh, yeah. and, and Mickey Rooney and you, Breakfast you, of Tiffany's you kind of can't use it outside of that context mm. even it, it, again hopefully my hope is that at best they were just trying something mm. you know that they were trying to do something a bit more thoughtful with it but instead all they did was put people in yellow face yeah, yeah. like you, it, you just it, can't it, do that trying to be thoughtful about it turns out it looks exactly the same as just doing the thing ergo it yeah. is just doing yeah, the just thing doing no the matter thing. what your motives may have been 
And this is something that Star Wars has dealt with as well, and it's something that is ingrained, as we've already mentioned, in a lot of the shit that George Lucas was inspired by as a kid, because that was the shit we had. Mm. A lot of the pulp materials, the superhero stories, the adventure stories, the the stories about going to incredible locales and saving people who were kidnapped by people, a lot of these seemingly uh, uh, sort of airy you know, light stories are actually drenched in ugliness and negativity and racism and sexism and God knows what other isms, all the isms. Mm. And I don't think George Lucas intentionally evoked those, but I also don't think he necessarily saw the harm in it either. Mm. And so when you see something like the way that the Ewoks are portrayed or the way the Neimoidians are portrayed or the way that, um, what is a Watto? A way that Toydarians are are portrayed. It's Mm. terrible. Um, it's worse than Ferengi. It's, yeah, it's really, <laughs> Ferengi's are pretty gross too, actually. So, and, and Klingons. We already discussed this on our Star Wars, on our Star Trek podcast. Klingons are based off of some racist stereotypes as well. Yeah, yeah the original design for sure. It's really, really ugly, and it is baked into King Kong. And if you want to enjoy King Kong, you have to confront that, and you have to just say, "Okay, that part sucks." Mm-hmm. Monster stuff's pretty cool. Like, you can just, you have to to deal with what you got. You can't pretend it's not there. You can't pretend it's not a big deal. Yeah. And we have to do that with Star Wars as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do believe that when you're looking at the history of cinema, that King Kong is just one of those linchpin films where it was completely of its time, but because elements of it were ahead of its time, the music, sound effects, the visual effects, some of the, just the general cinematic techniques it inspired so many people to push the medium forward mm. and it inspired so many people like Ray, like Ray Brad, uh, not Ray, Bra- Ray, Ray, Ray Harryhausen yeah. to push the visual effects forward and get to the point where we'd have something like Star Wars and then Star Wars would do the same thing and we'd get to the point where we'd have something like Avatar and then that will push people to do even more. Mm. It's an incredible achievement. Yeah. yeah. It's just got some problematic bits. <laughs> For sure. Damn yeah, right. Um, but yeah, uh, it, this was a really famous film. A lot of people really, really loved it. Uh, people you wouldn't expect uh, really loved King Kong. Like mm-hmm. um, people like Stanley Kubrick often yeah. cited films like King Kong as sort of being a little bit more purely, purely cinematic. Um, I, I brought up Inglorious Bastards. Uh, <laughs> Adolf Hitler famously really loved King Kong. Yeah, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Like he, he evidently was a big film nut, and yeah. you know, a, a no, knowing. Uh, Nixon as well really loved King Kong and he was also a big fan. It was a, it was a mainstream film. It was yeah. a blockbuster. Like liking King Kong was like liking Star Wars. Mm. It wasn't a shock. Like it was just a well-received yeah. movie on every level. Uh, but because so many people of some uh, like from across generations have said they've really liked King Kong, it often made like still to this day will be at the top of like best of the American films ever made lists. I mean, if only for uh, historical significance. Yeah. yeah but even uh, then, the craftsmanship alone is it, really it, impressive. It's kind of curious that we kind of take for granted that King Kong belongs there without really delving into some of the meta-narratives that we've been talking about. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's overdue for... I mean, I don't want to say reevaluation, well, but just a I new it, kind of evaluation. I think we need to start looking at it from other perspectives because I think it gets at stuff that, when I was rewatching it recently, I realized that there are elements of this film, like the meta narrative in particular, that just I've never heard anyone talk about it, and mm. I'm like, it's right fucking there. They're literally talking about it on camera, 
And it's so weird that we never really discuss it as a movie that is about making movies and a movie that is about the safari genre, whether it is uh, knowingly condemnatory in some way or just sort of accidentally revealing the ugliness behind it. It's kind of irrelevant. It's all there on camera. It makes that point. So anyway, it's a fascinating film. Elements of it still hold up today. Elements of it are incredibly dated and need to be discussed. Uh, But we do hope that you make a point to check it out at some point because it is an important chapter of film history. Uh, That is it for episode zero this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with a film that inspired the creation of Yoda. It is a film, another film, actually, directed by Akira Kurosawa called Dersu Uzala. It is not one of his more famous films. But it was the film that saved his life. It's a really important movie in Akira Kurosawa's life and career and in the creation of Star Wars. Uh, And I happen to really love it, and I haven't revisited it in a really long time, so I can't wait to watch it again. If you want to watch it with us, it is massively out of print on DVD. It costs like $175, but... On the Criterion channel, you can just watch it straight up through that streaming Mm. service. Uh, If you have that streaming service, we highly recommend it. If not, I think they have a free trial period. Uh, You should definitely check it out. I mean, you should have the Criterion channel. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. Also, we all have to make our decisions how to spend our money. But we do highly recommend that service. It's a really good service with a lot of great films. We use it all the time on our work. And we're going to use it right now to see a movie that is otherwise completely unavailable. So, can't wait. Mm. So we're going to talk about Dare Suzelle next week on episode zero. Uh, if you want to talk to us about this film, by all means, email us. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We would love to continue the conversation with you. Uh, we also are available on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, if you want more exclusive content from Whitney and myself, you can head on over to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimed.net where we have a ton of stuff. We have bonus podcasts like Out of Gas. We're reviewing every episode of Firefly. All our yesterdays, we review every episode of Star Trek in production order. Not on Disney+, Plus, where we talk about films that are not on Disney+, Plus but should be. Uh, we have uh, uh, Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture in chronological order. We have commentary drags. Uh, we have uh, Hangouts together. We have... All kinds of cool stuff over there, and uh, if you can afford to help us out, we sure would appreciate it. If you're already a subscriber, thank you for keeping this podcast going. We would not exist without you. And if you can't afford it, fair enough. We get it. Times are hard. Uh, But if you want to help us out, make sure you subscribe, rate us wherever you find us, and if you see anyone online saying they're looking for new podcasts, maybe let them know we exist. That'd be really great. Um, Whitney, am I forgetting anything? Uh, No, that's you got it. (laughs) What a relief. Hmm. Everybody, thank you so much again for listening. We hope you stay safe and sane. And remember, may the force be yada, yada, yada. May the force be.